Welcome to Willard Church of the Nazarene. We're glad you're here. We can't wait to share the service with you. Worship His soul. 
We are going to be in the book of Esther, so if you turn there in your Bibles, I'm going to be, I'm going to, we're going to cover the whole book. The whole book, right? Um, this might be an unusual text for Father's Day, but it is a great reminder for us that whether or not you have children, right, biologically, uh, whether or not your children have left the home and you're free of them, uh, you still have a job to do and a calling to speak into young people's lives today. You have an important role to play in a young person's life. In, in the account of Esther, we see a man named Mordecai choose. He chooses to be a father to a young girl. That's why when we hand out gifts on Mother's Days and Father's Days, we, we give it to all women and, and men. 
respectively, right? Because we want you to realize that you may not have a biological kid, but some of you have adopted and some of you are mentoring and we want to recognize that and call you to that, right? Uh, I don't know if Mordecai has any kids of his own. I'm not even sure if he's married. But what I do know is this man chose to act as a father and we can learn a lot from his example, right? Now, uh, like I said, I'm going to move through the entire account. I want to remind you of some things in case it's been a while since you've been in this book or since you've read this. This account takes place about 500 years before Jesus Christ. Mordecai is this minority. He's a Jewish man, right, living in a land where they had been taken, the Jews had been taken captive. Many of his Jewish brothers and sisters have been able to to leave, though, and go back home to Jerusalem after their captivity in Babylon ended. The, The Persians or the Chaldeans, as it's listed in your text, right, had defeated the Babylonians, and they were, for some reason, kind to the Jews and let this happen. People like Nehemiah, Ezra, Zerubbabel, uh, they had left the city of Susa or this area of Persia, and they had taken these treks back to Jerusalem, and the people had gone back with them. Esther, though, is the story of the Jews that remained. And we get this awesome account uh, of these ones after the captivity had ended. We we don't know who wrote Esther. It might have been Mordecai himself. There is no mention of God in this book, but God is clearly here. His fingerprints are all over it. The theme of the book of Esther is this providential hand of God, this divine hand of God. But back to Mordecai. Um, We don't know what he does. Uh, He seems to be an important person because we find him at the city gates. And usually the people that hung out at the city gates were influential leaders or their politicians and, and, and people of status. Um, as I said, he adopts his cousin, whose name is Hadassah, which is Persian for dazzling beauty. Her Jewish name is Esther, and so we call her that. Uh, she is so beautiful that she catches the eye of King Xerxes. He's this king of over 127 different provinces stretching from Ethiopia all the way to India. And if you're familiar with the story of the 300 Spartans and the stand that they make, you know this king, right? If you've ever heard the phrase, the law of the Medes and the Persians, that comes from this time period. That comes from this king. It's this unchangeable, immutable law. And when he spoke, that's exactly what it was. It was law. Not even he could change what he decreed. And he's viewed to some people not just as a king, but as a god. His wife is Queen Vashti. If you remember her, right, she's a little bit feisty. And during a banquet, um, I say banquet, but this was just a a 180-day party, right? Six months of banquet going on. The king invited people from all over the world to show off his wealth, to show off his his power, and to demonstrate that through this extravagant party. Uh, And after that, if that wasn't enough, he has a seven-day after party, uh, a seven-day banquet that starts at the end of the 180-day. And it's in 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 the middle of this banquet that he calls for the queen and wants to present her to the people there, and she refuses, right? A little bit feisty. Uh, This was a huge insult to the king. And and this set a tone, and and the other rulers were worried about what message uh, would be taken from this defiance, from this, this queen. And so the decision was made that she was removed from being a queen. She was banished. And at the end of chapter 1, a decree goes out that says this, every man should be ruler over his own household. The consequence of this, though, is that there's no longer a queen. So they bring in Ed McMahon, who does the star search, right? If you remember those days, it's unlike one that's ever been done. Ladies come from all over the region, and the one who will catch the king's eyes will be the next queen, will win the throne, and guess who that is? We know it's Esther. We meet her in chapter 2, verse 7. Mordecai had a cousin named Hadassah, whom he had brought up because she had neither father nor mother. This young woman who was also known as Esther had a lovely figure and was beautiful. 
Mordecai had taken her as his own daughter when her father and mother died. So here's the first decision, I think, dads, that we can, we can kind of apply to our lives and everybody else, though, is that Mordecai decided to be a father. Somehow this little girl had no mother and father, right? Mordecai could have said, well, you know, I'm a pretty, pretty busy person. I'm an influential person. I've got to spend time at these gates, right? I've got other commitments, and I'm just uh, not able to, to take on this role, and let's let somebody else raise this child, right? He could have said, let's send her back to Jerusalem to be with the other Jewish people, but something in him said, I will raise this child, right? And he made the decision to be a dad. We live in a country where men, far too many men, make the exact opposite decision, right? We live in a country where 17 or 18 million men are absent from the home in families. One in four. On top of that, there's about 7 million of those dads who are not only just gone from the home, but they're non-existent in their kids' lives. Non-existent, they've bailed. And we wonder why our country is going to hell. This, this is the number one reason. If you want to get behind something politically, check out how it affects the family and what it encourages and doesn't encourage, right? This is where the, the things happen. This is the statistics behind incarceration. This is the s- statistic behind poverty, right? It's dads that are, have gone. Mothers, you get nine months, on average, nine months to get used to the idea of being a mom, right? And I'm, I'm not saying this because I envy you, because I would not want to be, I could not <laughs> deliver a baby. Oh, gosh, that would be bad, right? Uh, but when that, when that child turns, when that child kicks you in the ribs, right, um, you, you already start to have this bond with them, right? You feel them growing and... and uh, Guys don't have that experience. And when they see their child for the very first time, right, they're in shock. And it hits them, oh, man, I'm a dad now. As a dad, we need to make the decision to embrace that fully and, and take that on, right? Women, you get nine months to get used to the idea to talk to that child and, and uh, uh, get to know that child. Fatherhood does not begin at conception, though, for us it, begins that delivery, and uh, that dad has to say, I'm going to be a father in that moment, right? And he sets in motion a lifestyle called fatherhood, which is in essence a series of uh, decisions that build on that one decision to, to make that child yours, right? That's the decision that Mordecai chose, now, you really need to pay attention to scene three at the end of chapter two. Scene one was the queen was lost, right, taken away, banished. Scene two, a new queen is found, Esther, yay. Uh, and scene three, there is a plot that is discovered. Mordecai is at the city gates doing whatever he does, and he overhears, overhears two of the king's eunuchs officers plotting to kill the king. Their names, Big Than or Big Thana and Teresh, they, they sound like bad guys, right? Mordecai hears of their plan and tells Esther, who in turn tells the king. They investigate and find out uh, what he says is true. And Big Than and Teresh were impaled on stakes. If you ever want to look up something really horrific, look up what it means to be impaled on a stake. It, it is a horrible way to go. But Mordecai's help gets recorded. We see this in chapter 2, in verse 23. It says, All this was written down in the daily court record in the king's presence. Remember that because it's important at the end. In scene 4, the villain enters. Who's that? You guys remember his name? Starts with an H. Haman, right? Whenever I say Haman, just feel free to boo. Because he's the bad guy. Uh, Haman, there you go, is the second in command overall, Persia. He's, he's a guy with an incredible ego to match that position. He demanded that every person would bow in his presence, right? And everyone did this except for one man, Mordecai. Mordecai's not afraid of Haman. 
He was, he was not threatened by him at all. And consequently, when Haman would... Thank you. Haman passed by, Mordecai would be that only person that would remain standing out of that long, I'm sure, people of people bowing down. But Mordecai had one God, right? One person that he would bow before, and his name was not Haman. It was Jehovah. How do you think that made Haman feel? Insulted? The text tells us something very interesting. It wasn't enough for Haman just to kill Mordecai. He wanted to wipe out all the Jewish people living in Babylon, right? So this is our second principle about good fathers that we can apply to our lives. Look at the character that Mordecai had, right? If you know the book of Esther, you know that before the story is over, Esther is going to demonstrate courage, right? bravery that will save a nation. And what we need to ask ourselves is, where do you think she learned it from? Where'd she get it from? A crisis does not develop character. A crisis reveals character, right? Crisis does not develop. It reveals. In the last sermon, I I said that kids catch more of what we do than of what we say, right? Character is not taught. It's caught by our actions. Max Lucado tells a story about his dad. He said it was a time when he was old enough to uh, be able to read and yet old enough to be bored in church. Some of you guys might be at that stage. But he was sitting there holding his father's pocketbook that had a check register in it. And he went through that register, and what he remembered was there was this series of of checks just written to the church. Not just one, but all the way down one page, down the next page, down the next, down the next. He said there were 52 contributions written out, one for each week. The money wasn't there, and he wouldn't be able to give all those checks at once. He, He waited till the dates came. He had post-dated those checks. Uh, He had put those checks in a drawer so that on Sunday morning he could take out the corresponding one and drop it in the offering plate. He did that just in case he would be tempted not to give. Max said his dad and family didn't have a lot of money, but he was faithful in giving those checks. Max caught something, he said, that day. He said his dad never sat him down to give give him a lecture on being a good steward, but he did give him a lesson that he'd never forget when he saw those checks. Dads, moms, our kids are watching us, right? Make no mistake. What are they catching, though, from us? Apparently, Esther caught courage because the story from here on out is a story of bravery, right? Mordecai makes the decision to confront his own evil that he sees to do something that could have resulted in him being killed, but he steps out and confronts it, and Esther catches that. Moving on to scene five, we've met Mordecai, we've met Haman, and we know that Haman wants to kill all the Jewish people. And so Haman goes to the king, Esther chapter three, verse eight, then Haman said to King Xerxes, there is a certain people dispersed among the people in all the provinces of your kingdom who keep themselves separate. Their customs are different from all the others around them, and they do not obey the king's laws. It is not in the king's best interest to tolerate them. If it pleases the king, let a decree be issued to destroy them, and I will give 10,000 talents of silver to the king's administrators for the royal treasury. So the king took a signet ring from his finger and gave it to Haman, the Agite, the enemy of the Jews. Keep the money, the king said to Haman, and do with the people as you please. So an edict goes out. And the Jewish people of Susa are thrown into pandemonium because they know that their lives will soon be over. Chapter 4, we see the people wailing and fasting. That's how they respond. Mordecai comes to the city gate also wailing and in sackcloth, right? And when Esther, his daughter, hears of him, she inquires what has happened. He responds with what was going on and encourages her to seek out the king right, for help. Confront this. He ends this statement back to her with this well-known famous words, Esther 4.14, you may have been chosen queen 
for such a time as this. Now, I want us to see what's happening here, dads, right? Mordecai is encouraging Esther to go to the king to do something. This would not be easy for Mordecai to do this because it's not easy for us to do the same thing today. We all make choices to send our kids out. We send them to camps, right? We, we send them off to college. We send them out on missions trips. We even had that first time where we let them go to grandma and grandpa's, right? And we pray everything goes okay. In, in doing this, though, there's always one thing that comes back to our, our minds and something that we're concerned about. We, something that always makes it difficult, and that is we want them to be safe in whatever they go out and whatever they do. We want to protect them, especially us dads. That's our role. That's our job, right? That's our calling. Mordecai knew, though, that there was a time when a child's life matures and that he or she has a purpose. He recognized that. For such a time as this, which brings up the question to us, dads, what is the purpose we're challenging our kids to live for? What is the purpose we're challenging our kids to live for. What are we equipping them for? Are we, helping to, are we helping them see their role in the kingdom of God? Are we helping them see that they are uniquely gifted for that? That there is a call on their lives and that there is another specific call if they'll only listen, right? Are we challenging them to think thoughts about what God is calling them to do? What is their job in the body of Christ, right? Are we equipping them for that? For a time when they will be released? Or is that not even on our radar? Psalm 127 says, Children are a heritage from the Lord, offspring a reward from Him. Like arrows... In the hand, in the hands of a warrior, are children born in one's youth. Do you get this idea? Do you see this, dads? Do you picture yourself pulling back the bowstring, loading your kid up, and sending them off on target at something? Did you prep that arrow? Did you help it be straight? Did you put a good tip on it? And are you willing to send it out, to let it loose, right? The question is, are we preparing them? Are we sending them out or are we struggling to keep them home, to keep them safe, to keep them out of harm's way, right? We're not doing our kids any favors when we do that. When we yell at teachers, when we yell at coaches, when we take their sides against the umpires, right? We're not helping them by protecting them and sheltering them. No, we're called to send them out like an arrow. I love how prepared Esther is for this. Esther knows, right? She knows that she can't just go walking into the king's throne room even though she's his wife. She knows that, that if she goes in there and he doesn't dip the little scepter that her head's going to come off, right? She can't go in unless she's invited. So what does she do? How does she prepare for this? How has she been prepared for this, right? She tells all the men and women in Persia to do what? Pray and fast for three days. Her preparation is to seek out the hand of God. Has she been prepared well or not? Oh, she has, right? What could be better? than to teach our kids this. What could be better than to prepare them in this way? But dads, we're, we're too busy prepping other things. We gotta model this. We gotta teach this. We gotta pass this on to our kids. Principle number three, good fathers challenge their kids to live for a purpose. Look what happens in chapter 5, verse 1. On the third day, Esther put on her royal robes and stood in the inner court of the king's palace in front of the king's hall. Oh, the savvy of this woman, right? She puts on her nicest clothing and just goes, stands there in the doorway. She doesn't go rushing in and like us guys would do, right? She doesn't make any demands like we would probably do. She just stands there and waits. And Xerxes lifts his head and sees his queen and invites her in. He's well pleased with her, 
right? Verse 3, then the king asked, what is it, Queen Esther? What is your request? Even up to half the kingdom, it will be given to you. Remember, though, she's savvy. She says, I just want to have lunch with you, honey, right? Let's just you and me have a little banquet and invite Haman to come along. I'm sure he's probably disappointed that Haman is invited, but it is a banquet, and we know how much he likes those, right? So Esther, Haman, and Xerxes all had this meal together, and when the meal was over, Xerxes says, what do you want? And she says, I want to have another banquet with you tomorrow. Another banquet? Yeah, we can do that, right? Sounds good to me. So they set it up for the next day. Haman, oh man, he's feeling pretty darn good, right? He's proud of himself, not only as he has dinner with the king and queen, right? But he's been invited back for a repeat performance tomorrow. So he struts out of the throne room. He walks out of the, the palace, right? And all the people bow down except for Mordecai. That Mordecai makes me so angry, right? He gets in the limo, goes home, he gets out, and he says, I just had the greatest day of my life, and it's been spoiled by that man, that guy, right? So he calls his wife and friends and starts boasting to them, puffing himself up about his wealth and everything that's happened. He brags about how he was the only person that got invited to this banquet with the king and queen. And he says, what's even better than this is they invited me back tomorrow. But despite all this, he can't enjoy it because he's so stuck on this Mordecai, because this Mordecai is sitting at the king's gate, right? Well, his wife and friends encourage him to set up a pole 75 feet tall up in the air and tell him, hey, why don't you go ask the king tomorrow to have Mordecai impaled on it? Then you can go to the banquet and enjoy yourself. And Haman thought, oh, that's a great idea. I'll do that. So that's how we set up the end of chapter 5. Haman, I'm sure, has a great night's sleep, right? Thinking about everything that's going to happen tomorrow. But, but guess who doesn't have a good night's sleep? The king. So Xerxes has the court records brought to him. And do you remember what was recorded? The court official reads about a time in which two men by the name of Big Than and Teresh plotted against him. And Mordecai overheard them and told Esther the plan, and it was thwarted. It was nipped in the bud. And the king turns to the official and says, was anything ever done for this Mordecai, right? Did we ever give him a medal? Did we ever give him a week off? Did we ever do anything for him? And, and they respond by saying, no, nothing was done. About that time, Haman just happens to show up, right? He can't wait to talk to the king and ask for his request. And the king says before he can do that, though, hey, Haman, what should we do for a wonderful guy? What should we do for somebody that we want to honor, a hero, somebody who has earned my loyalty and respect, right? What would you suggest I do for him? And, of course, Haman thinks he's talking about himself. He's the ultimate ego guy. And so he says, well, I, I think we should take a robe that you've worn before and put it on this person, put him in a, a, a chariot pulled by a horse, a stallion that you've ridden on to, and you could let him uh, do all this, and he could be led throughout the streets and everybody proclaiming his praises before everyone, right? And the people could bow down before him. And Xerxes says, that's a great idea. Go do that for Mordecai, Right? So Haman spends the morning being chauffeur for Mordecai. He's so upset. The Bible says he returns home, right, with his head covered in grief and tells his wife and his friends what happened. Well, at least he's got the banquet to go to, right, day two. So he goes to the banquet. The king and queen are sitting there. They eat. And pretty soon uh, the king says to the queen, now tell me, honey, what, what did you want to ask of me? And she says, I'll tell you. There is a man so vile, so villainous and evil that he wants to destroy me and all my people. And the king leans back, his neck stiffens right, and he says, who is this person, right? And she points his finger and says, that vile Haman. King gets up in a rage, goes outside to cool down. Haman's terrified, right? Falls before the couch of the queen and is begging her for mercy. The king comes back and actually thinks that he's hitting on her, making a move on her, and he says, that does it. And about that time, Harbona, one of the king's eunuchs that had gone to get Haman and seen the pole that he 
built, right, tells the king, hey, Haman set up a pole outside his house, 75 feet tall, and wanted to have Mordecai impaled on it. You know, the one who set up and helped you out and prevented you from getting killed, that, that same Mordecai, just so you know that. And Esther 7.10 says, so they impaled Haman on the pole he had set up for Mordecai. Then the king's fury subsided. My friends, we see in Esther, right, a young lady full of courage, right? Courage that was modeled by a dad. Courage that was caught, right? We see a dad that sends his daughter out. And I praise God. I love, I love the way the Bible elevates women and calls them to these things as well, right? Teaches them that they can be courageous, that they have been born for just a time as this as well. Man, it takes courage to stand up and confront evil. Doesn't it? Here's some things I want you to take away. Never underestimate the providence of God. Never underestimate the providence of God. Some of you have a Haman in your life right now, right? A troublemaker, somebody who is just a thorn in your flesh. Remember, the story's not over, right? The culprit may be on the throne room, right? The power may be in the throne, right? They all might be stacked against you, but the sovereign hand of God determines history. The story's not over, friend. Don't get discouraged. Don't give up. The sovereign hand of God is working and can use the worst thing for his glory and for your good. Amen? Dads, mentors, can I have permission to beat on you a little bit, to goad you, to get on you? Never underestimate the influence of a good father. Dads, we, we know the impact that we have. I hope we know. Maybe we don't know the impact that we have, but it's huge, right? We sow seeds. We're sowing seeds right now in the lives of teens, in the lives of, of young kids, uh, maybe even in the lives of people that have already left the house, right? We have the privilege, we have the responsibility to influence those around us. And we have to remember that so much more is caught by our walk than our talk. Don't trick yourself. Don't lie to yourself, right? There, there are kids around us that need to be told firmly, Right? firmly and sternly the direction that they need to go. And that should come from us. There are times when kids need to be sent out with a purpose. And that should come from us. May, may God give us as fathers, as mentors, the wisdom to do that, right? We all recognize the destructiveness that comes from fatherless homes, don't we? When I gave you those statistics, you all recognize that. You all realize what fatherless homes do, right? Maybe you've been there and you've made the commitment to be there physically. But what about spiritually? Where are you at when it comes to that and your kids? Or the kids that are around you in this church? Are you absent? Or are you raising them up, training them up in order to send them out? Proverbs 22, 6, train up a child in the way he should go, and when he is old, he will not depart from it. Joshua 24, 14 through 15 says, Now, therefore, fear the Lord, serve him in sincerity and in truth, and put away the gods which your fathers served on the other side of the river, Choose for yourselves this day whom you will serve. But as for me and my house, we will serve the Lord. That was said by a dad about his household. Will you say the same thing? Will you take on the responsibility of that for your household? 
Deuteronomy 6, 6 through 9 says, These words which I command you today shall be in your heart. Dads, have you put it in your heart? You shall teach them diligently to your children and shall talk of them when you sit in your house, when you walk by the way, when you lie down, and when you rise up. You shall bind them as a sign on your hands, and they shall be as frontlets between your eyes. You shall write them on the doorposts of your house and on your gates. Does the word of God hold that place? In your house? Dad's? Does it? Are you taking on that responsibility to pass that down? Men, it is on us to spiritually lead our kids. Is it hard? Yeah. Do you feel like a hypocrite? Yeah. The only hope that we have for getting this right is if we have a relationship with Jesus Christ and we're following him. I never have felt as a Christian more like a failure than it comes to this area, if I'm honest, as a dad. How the heck do you do that? What do you do? How do you, how do you make this a part of your household? I still feel like that, a failure today. I don't know if you do, dads, but today... I want to make a commitment to do some things differently from here on out. And I'm wondering if there's any dads or any men who will join me in that. We cannot be spiritually absent, just like we cannot be physically absent. Look what it's doing to our country. We can't be spiritually absent from our kids' lives. We have to set the tone We've got to show the way. My, my mom raised me, did a great job. If you're a single mom, your, dad, your, your husband's not here, you can do it, but it's a lot harder. It's possible. Anything's possible with God. But if you're a dad and you're here, if you're a man, lead the way in this. Your, your spouse shouldn't have to. Your spouse should be encouraging you, not nagging on you, right? Supporting you. But give them something to support. Let them take this on, right? Don't be a spiritually absent father. Choose today. Make the vow today that as Paul instructed, right, I will not provoke my children to wrath. God forgive me on that one. But bring them up in the training and admonition of the Lord. That's the call on us. It's on us if you're not sure what to do, I was trying to think about how can I do this better because I'm failing in this effort, right? And here's what I came up with. Get to church. Make every opportunity to get to church. Get to Sunday school. Get in some kind of small group. Get your kids in some kind of small group where they're hearing it. Make church a priority. Not just coming to church, but being a part of the church a priority. When your pastor is not smart enough to realize that you teens should be a part of doing some things, get in his face and tell him, I want to serve. I want to be a part of that. Dads, set them up in that. Dads, lead the way in that, right? And then, dads, if you're not in the Word of God, this is what I've started doing. I used to do this when I was a teenager, but I'm going to read through the Bible in a year. There's plans back there. Grab one of these on the way out. You can read chronologically, or you can read by the books of the Bible, right? Dads, you need to be in the Word of God. Do that. Dads, you need to be praying for your kids every day. I'm sure you do, but I mean really praying for them, right? Get your notebook out. Write down what you're praying for and about them, because the more you're praying about this, the more you're thinking about the direction that you're heading in this, right? And then get a devotional and have a time at dinner time with your kids, and just read it with them. Encourage them to be reading, but make it a part of your life to have a devotional with your kids. I think if we do that, dads, we can, we can do a pretty good job. Maybe your kids are not home. Maybe you buy them a devotional and give it to them and help them out. But you can pray for them. You can be in the Word. You can be working on your relationship with Jesus Christ and setting the tone to send out and to give to them. Will you respond to that? Will you do that? That's the call. Would you stand with me?
what you make a priority, dad, it, is, it is uncanny. I read you the statistics last year. But dads who bail on church have kids who bail on church, even if moms are devoted. It is something about dads and their direction. If it's not a priority, it's not a priority for them. If the word of God is not a priority for you, it's not going to be for your kids. I guarantee it. That's just how the majority of the statistics show us. There's a heavy price to be paid for spiritually absent dads. Let that not be us. Amen? Father, we thank you for today. Lord, I know I feel like a complete hypocrite up here. A complete failure. Lord, would you give us wisdom and how to lead the way? Lord, would you help us not to make this just about going to church, but be in the church, the church that you've called us to be. Lord, the families that you've called us to be. Would you direct our paths? Would you help us to be on our knees daily seeking you out in the direction that you have for us? Would you help us to be on our knees daily praying for our kids and all that they have to deal with? Father, would you help us to be people that, that don't say just do what I say, not what I do? Lord, help us to live it out. And Father, would you give us some grace? Would you remind us of that, that we're not going to be perfect, but we serve a Father who is. And Father, if we do nothing else, let us point our kids and these young people towards you. Lord, we love you, and we give you praise. In your name we pray, amen.